If you've got a Bible this morning, Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We are studying the book of Revelation. We took a few weeks off for, um, you know, we had Pastor Sam here right after the Adorn Conference. We had Mother's Day, and now we're kind of getting back in our, our rhythm, if you will. Uh, we've been studying specifically the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and uh, I was looking through my notes, man, this, is, this morning is like the 22nd sermon out of the book of Revelation. And this morning, we'll start chapter three. <laughs> so your chance of being raptured out of here before we finish the book of Revelation is pretty high because uh, we, are, we are going super slow. But, you know, things, things in the book of Revelation require some attention and time. Uh, it's a book that a lot of Christians are very interested in. You know, there, there's, a, there's kind of a, a stigma around the book of Revelation. Some people are interested in to know what it means and, and what it teaches. Other people are very fearful as a matter of fact, there are some, some, even some Christians that would not even read the book of Revelation uh, for fear of what, what they might discover or what they might learn. Uh, we studied in, in Revelation chapter 1 that as, as Christ reveals this revelation, he actually says, blessed is he that readeth and that keepeth the sayings of this book. There's, there's actually blessing promised with this book of the Bible. And yeah, it's got some kind of some things that are like, whoa, man, that's kind of heavy and big, but that's okay. Uh, our God is, 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 is able and gracious, and, and he wants us to understand. I think God gave us the book of Revelation for us to really understand exactly what's going to happen in the end times leading up to his, his, him revealing himself to the world at his second coming. And so let me just remind you, we've studied, we begin the study of seven churches in Asia Minor. These are seven real historical churches that existed in the first century. And, and as, as Christ is giving John this book of Revelation, that is the immediate audience to which this book goes. It goes to those seven churches that were really in existence in the first century. And yet, those seven churches also represent seven types of churches that have existed throughout all of church history. In other words, as, as you study church history, and, and you know, I would encourage you to, to, to invest some time studying church history, you're going to find that, that from the book of Acts till today, there's been seven types of churches that have existed. And, and we would do well as we study this, this book of Revelation to ask ourselves, which church do we represent? Which of those seven churches really reveals our character, our, our standing before the Lord, the struggles that we experience? Every one of those seven churches historically had challenges and yet Christ gave them opportunity to overcome those challenges through him. He reveals something unique about himself that allowed that church, if they would respond rightly, to overcome the challenges. We have challenges as churches. We have challenges as Christians. God's plan is that we overcome. But in order to do that, we have to follow a biblical prescription in our life. We have to follow the word of God specifically to overcome our circumstances. So those seven churches represent seven types of churches, but they also represent the entirety of church history. So as we, as we look at all of church history, as we look backwards from where we are today, all the way back to the book of Acts, these seven churches lay out for us the entirety of church history. And as we look at this overview this morning, I just want to remind us, John is standing, his position is on the day of the Lord, which is the, the second coming of Christ, and he's writing the things that he has seen. He's writing 
the things that he's looking back and seeing that are behind him. And what he's seeing behind him is church history. It's the entirety of church history. And so we looked at the, the church of Ephesus. And again, this morning, if, if this is your first morning, please know, man, we've been at this for about 20 weeks. And so I, I, I'm not trying to, to, to get too deep in the weeds right off the bat, but, but there's a lot of background that we've covered. The church of Ephesus for us represents the church period from 90 AD to 200 AD. And of that church period, Christ says of the church of Ephesus that they left their first love. In other words, there was a, there was a correction that he gave that church. And in, histor- in history, what we see is that after the death of the apostles of Christ, the apostolic church fathers, the early church fathers after the apostles, they began to leave and to deviate from the word of God in their writings and in their teachings. As a matter of fact, in, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2, Jesus says to that church at Ephesus, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, how thou canst bear them that are evil, and thou hast tried them which say that they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. And, and, and as we study church history, right after the death of the apostles of Christ, men that the apostles of Christ actually discipled, those men began to deviate from the word of God in their beliefs and in their writing, some of which continued to say that they were modern day apostles. And yet we know that the apostle, the office of the apostles ceased with the 12 apostles there, there certainly are apostles of the church as far as missionaries, but the apostolic giftedness ceased because the revelation of God was complete. And yet, in church history, man, there's this deviation away from God's word, still good men, still men that were probably saved, and yet they deviated in their walk with Christ. They left the authority of God's word, and they began to say that they were things that they absolutely were not, which leads to the second period of church history, the, the, the period of Smyrna, which goes from 200 to 325 AD. And, and here's the key for that church period of time. Those deviations that began in Ephesus allowed Satan to develop the beginnings of a false religious system called the synagogue of Satan. And what happened in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9 is that that, that false doctrine and the seeds of false doctrine that began to infiltrate the church gave way and paved the way for the devil to get a foothold in biblical Christianity. Revelation 2 and verse 9 says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And as we look in church history, man, there were people right after the death of the apostles that said they were apostles. God said they weren't. Now there are people that say that they are Jews and they're not. And they're claiming the promises of the nation of Israel, literally, spiritually, for their life. And God calls that religious system the synagogue of Satan. And then we see the Pergamos church period from 325 to 500 AD. And what happens is Satan gets a synagogue, but then he gets established in a seat of authority. Pergamos was a key Roman city in Asia Minor. It was a political capital it had significant influence, not only in that region, but worldwide. And in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, Christ says, I have a few things against thee at Pergamos, because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and commit fornication. And here's just what you need to know. Man, as, as we study church history, we also are seeing the way the devil works to combat and come against biblical Christianity. And, and so where he began persecution, and, and, and listen, the more saints that he martyred, the more the church grew, Satan begins to change his method, and now he marries the church with the world, and he creates this false religious system. He has a seat in that synagogue, and Satan dwelt in Pergamos. And again, this is the beginnings of his universal world religion that ultimately would, would, would try to counterfeit biblical Christianity. We studied in the church area age of Thyatira from 500 to 1000 AD that God identified this religious system as Jezebel, and he calls it the depths of Satan. As in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants and commit fornication and eat things offered to idol and, uh, idols. And so, and so what's happened in church history is the devil has come in, and instead of combating directly against biblical Christianity, he begins to counterfeit it with a religious system that God calls Jezebel, and that doctrine is nothing more than the doctrine of Balaam of the Old Testament, which is really just the, the doctrine of Babylon. And you say, man, why does all that matter? Well, it matters because the devil is the greatest counterfeiter of God that there is. And, and, and things that seem to be, quote unquote, Christian and spiritual may not be biblical or scriptural. In other words, just because it looks religious or looks spiritual or sounds Christian, it doesn't mean it's authentic. And listen, you have to understand through history, this is the way the devil has worked. He has come, against, he has come against biblical Christianity first by combating it, but that didn't work. Because when he came hard-nosed against it and martyred the saints, man, the gospel went further into the world. And so what he did was he figured out, I can't come against it directly, so I'll come against it in a counterfeit form through a false religious system. And that's what he did. And listen, as we, as we continue on this journey of studying these seven churches, we're going to see that universal religious system, which is Jezebel, which is nothing more than Babylonianism, propagate the entire world as a universal religious system. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 17 and verse 5, God calls this religious system Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. That would have been a good Mother's Day message, right? You got, we just came off Mother's Day. That would have been a horrible message, right? Well, let's talk about Babylon, the mother of harlots. That's a horrible Mother's Day message. Okay, that's why we didn't do it last week. So we, we saved it for this week. And so, but I, I want you to understand that, that this is the system the devil is using to, to corrupt the minds of the simplicity of the gospel and to counterfeit biblical Christianity. And so whatever false religious systems exist in this world that aren't biblical, the truth is they're just Babylonian. They're just Babylonian because that's the way the devil works. Okay, so this morning, we're going to pick it up in Revelation 3, and we're going to study the church of Sardis. And each of these churches that we're studying, number one, we're talking a little bit about the church and then we're learning something about Christ. 
and how that church needed to know something specific about Christ. And so this morning, that's as far as we'll get. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and we'll knock this out pretty quick. Look at verse 1. The Bible says, Unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come upon thee as a thief, and thou shalt, know what hour, thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. There has a few names in Sardis which have not defiled thy garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. We'll get to the rest of that passage next week. This morning, let's talk about the church in Sardis. Let's talk about the city of Sardis. This is actually the only time in the Bible that Sardis is mentioned. It's mentioned in the book of Revelation. We know from Revelation 1 and verse 4 that Sardis is in Asia. And there's some interesting historical information about Sardis. As a matter of fact, when you study history, there was an an ancient kingdom uh, with a man named King Croesus. And I think I got a picture of that guy. Uh, Of course, it looks like Gerard Butler in 300, but uh, this is King Croesus, and and he reigned over this kingdom called Lydia, which is in the same area historically that Sardis later came into be. Here's what is interesting about this guy as it relates to the Bible. It was during his reign of his kingdom that they discovered the secret of separating gold from silver. In other words, these, these, the, the, these people that were part of his kingdom were able to produce metal in a way that had never been produced before. They could mine metal, they could separate the gold, they could separate the silver, and, and basically they could get pure gold through their metallurgy and pure silver through their metallurgy. And the reason that became important is because Sardis could mint pure silver coins and pure gold coins And the value of those coins became the standard for world trade. In other words, Sardis was kind of the capital of modern currency. And and they established a standard of value for gold and for silver that the rest of the world took heed to. As a matter of fact, this king was was famous and well-known. They even had a saying uh, in in ancient times that, that if you were as rich as Croesus, they were talking about the fact that this king and his kingdom were just wealthy. I mean, they established a culture in in Sardis of retail shops, of of standardized currency, of an economic revolution that transformed the Greek civilization. It was pretty amazing. Now, you think about that, and then you think about those of you that are students of the Bible, you know that this stuff in Revelation also points to the tribulation period. And it is interesting that Sardis had a standardized economic system, a worldwide currency established by a king that was the standard of economic standards for all countries that traded. Uh, you know, as rich as Cro- Croesus, today we would say as rich as Cory Carter. That's, that's what we would say it today. <laughs> but, 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 man, this dude was rich. That was the saying. And, and they're referring to this king who minted the first gold coin of pure gold. Okay, and so historically, there's some interesting things about Sardis. 
Remember, inspirationally, this Sardis period represents a period of church history, and it represents 1,000 to 1,500 A.D. You say, why does that matter? Well, the name Sardis is God's one-word encapsulation of all of this church period, and the name Sardis literally means red ones, red ones. And, and as we study history, it's during this period of time, from 1,000 to 1,500 A.D., it, it represents for us the period of church history where persecution, and here's your blank, bloodshed upon true Christians was greater than at any other time. It was, a, it was a period of immense persecution and martyrdom. As a matter of fact, and, and, and again, when we see these one-word representations of, of church history through these cities, it's God's perspective as he looks down and sees what's happening to his church. It's in this 500-year period that God saw his people, those who were covered with his own blood spiritually, he sees them now covered with their own blood physically. It was a time of immense martyrdom in church history. You say, well, man, thank God I don't live then. You know, thank God I wasn't alive then. Well, thank God, yeah, for sure. But you need to learn from that because, because these saints faced opposition. They faced obstacles. They faced a false religious system that if they didn't bow the knee to, it cost them their life. Man, we need to value the saints of old. And we need to value what they experienced. And, and, and listen, when you think, and, and again, man, I'm not minimizing anybody's challenges that they face in life. But can I just tell you that there were some people through history that when it got hard to serve the Lord and it wasn't popular to serve the Lord and, and man, culture and religious tradition wanted you to bow down to a false religious system, there were just some people that said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to recant my faith. I'm not going to recant my testimony in the, in the finished work of Christ for my sin. And it cost them their life. Man, what does it cost us to serve the Lord? Well, in July, it's going to cost you an extra hour. You're going to have to get up early an hour to come to church. And I say that jokingly, but not jokingly. It's going to cost you something. And it's going to cost you to come on Wednesday night to pray corporately. And it's going to cost you to come to a new member's class. And it's going to cost you to get discipled. And, and listen, it's just going to cost you to follow Christ. We need to sit down and count the cost. And if we're really going to follow Christ, we need to know that there's a cost involved. These people paid the cost with their own blood because they felt like Christ was worthy enough. And so I hope you do too. I hope you feel like Christ is worth living your life for because he is. Doctrinally, this period of church history points to, it foreshadows the tribulation period where when the Antichrist one world, world, world religion is established in the tribulation and those who don't submit to it agree to it, to that system, they'll be martyred. We see that in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. You've got a, a long passage up there. But the point is, in Revelation 17, 1, 1 to 6, is, is John sees this mystery religious system, Babylon. It says in verse 6, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. Man. And with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And, and man, what John is seeing is this religious system consuming and martyring and destroying true Bible-believing Christians. 
And John is like, oh my goodness, I can't even, I can't even imagine what, what I'm seeing. He, he's, he's wondering, he's in awe, he's blown away at what he's seeing. And so that's, that's what's happening in Sardis, not only historically, but also inspirationally as it pictures for us church history. This morning, let's look at how Christ reveals himself to this church, because the key for this church to overcome is to cling to who Christ is in this passage. And so look what it says in verse 1, the second part of the verse 1. It says, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And let me just remind you that every one of these churches in Revelation needed to know a key characteristic of Christ so that they could overcome what was happening in their circumstance. And so there's two things that Christ reveals about himself to this church that they needed to hear. Number one, he reveals that he is the one that has the seven spirits of God. Now listen, if you spend any time in the Bible, that ought to make you go, what? Seven spirits of God? I thought there was only one spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, right? I mean, I mean that is what the Bible teaches, right? Okay, three of you have read that. Okay, uh, Revelation chapter 4, we saw this, we, we haven't saw this, we, we did see it earlier, but let me give you Revelation 4, <laughs> we're in Revelation 3, we, we couldn't have seen this yet. Revelation 4 verse 5, it says, out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the, what? The throne of God, which are the what? The seven spirits of God. Oh, the book of Revelation is so hard to understand. Well, God told you in Revelation 4 and verse 5 what those seven spirits are. They are the seven lamps of fire burning before the Lord. And they are the seven spirits of God. So the seven spirits of God are seven lamps. As we go through the New Testament, we find over and over that the spirit of God is just one spirit. And Ephesians 4 says, Paul writes and he says, there's one body, and there's how many spirits? One spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that we've been made to drink into how many spirits? So is it seven or is it one? And the answer is, Corey, the answer is yes. Is it seven or one? And the answer is yes, because we find the meaning of this in Isaiah 11 and verse 2. And let me show it to you real quick. And, and again, man, we're, we are in the weeds now. Uh, but we're going to study the Bible. We believe the Bible can reveal itself to us as we compare Scripture with Scripture. So what are these seven spirits of God, and why does Christ want this church to understand these seven spirits? Look at Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. It says, There came forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Okay, and that, that prophecy is about Christ. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of, what does it say? The spirit of wisdom and what? Understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And actually, as you look at Isaiah 11, God says, hey, those seven spirits, here they are. It, it's the spirit of the Lord. It's the spirit of wisdom. It's the spirit of understanding. It's the spirit of counsel. It's the spirit of might. It's the spirit of knowledge. And it's the spirit of the fear of the Lord. 
And this prophecy is concerning Christ, but God is revealing to us the fullness or the oneness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. There's seven characteristics of his ministry. There's seven applications of the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. And listen, that church in Sardis, what they needed was the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. If they were going to succeed and overcome the challenges that they faced, and, and they faced some challenges, they were a persecuted church, but that persecuted church had to learn its dependency upon the Holy Spirit of God and the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. Sardis needed to know Christ, but specifically they needed to know the fullness and the power of his Holy Spirit. And, and can I just tell you, if that church in Sardis needed to know that, this church needs to know that. We need to know, truly, biblically, we need to know the fullness of the power and the meaning of the Holy Spirit of God in our life, individually and as a church. And, and let me just, I got a lot of verses I'm about to hit you with, but they're not in your notes, because I knew if I did that, I'd never get done this morning. But can I, can I take just a, a three-minute window and tell you who the Holy Spirit is according to the Word of God? You guys okay with that? Let me, let me tell you who the Holy Spirit of God is. And, and as I begin, let me start by telling you who he's not. Can I, can I begin by telling you who the Holy Spirit of God is not? Number one, he's not your feelings. In other words, hey, I feel like fill in the blank. Whatever you feel like, praise the Lord. But listen, the Holy Spirit of God is not your feelings. Number two, he's not your tradition or your experiences. In other words, the, the Spirit of God is not limited to or bound by or defined by your religious experience, your religious idea, your religious custom, or your religious traditions, no matter how much they mean to you or anybody else. The Spirit of God is not your tradition. It's not your experience. And number three, the Spirit of God is not your human instinct or your ability to humanly reason through a situation or a circumstance. In other words, there's a big difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. So let me tell you who the Holy Spirit is according to the Word of God. Number one, He is God. That's who He is. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7 says, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. So there's a oneness in the Trinity. There's a oneness in the Godhead, and the Holy Ghost is part of that. And so the Spirit of God is just as much God as God the Father and God the Son. By the way, don't do it right now, but if 1 John 5 and verse 7 is not in your Bible... It might be time to get a new Bible. There's a reason that verse is in your Bible. Because the Godhead is one. The Father, the Son, the Word, and the Holy Ghost are one. And the Spirit of God is God himself. And we know from John chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, that the Spirit of God reproves the world of sin. It tells us in John 4 and verse 8, when he's come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin 
because they believe not on me of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more and of judgment because the prince of this world and judge. Listen, you ever sat in church and felt like God's all over you reading your email from the last week, the choices you made, the decisions you made, the thoughts you thought, the things that you were going to do and didn't do, the things you did and shouldn't have done. That's the spirit of God reproving us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment because he is God. And can I just tell you that you can resist the Holy Spirit when he does that in your life? Acts chapter 7, when, when Stephen is preaching to the Pharisees, to the Jews in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. And so Stephen says, you know what? You're just like your daddies in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God was moving and trying to reveal the word of God to them and convict them and draw them to repentance, and they resisted. And now Christ has come, and he died for our sin, and he's resurrected, and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and you've heard that message preached, and you've resisted. You can resist the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that brings conviction of our sin. It's the Spirit of God that brings confirmation of God's truth and God's word. And listen, Israel had heard it in Acts chapter 7, and God's desire was that they would repent. And they said, no, instead of repenting, we'll just resist that. You can blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God too, by the way. And the reason you can blaspheme him is because he's God. Luke chapter 12 and verse 10 says, Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven now, doctrinally, that's talking about people in the first century that rejected Christ's earthly ministry and attributed his miracles to the devil himself. And Christ says that that's blasphemy because the Holy Spirit of God is God. Otherwise, it wouldn't be blasphemy. But practically, there is no unpardonable sin for you and for me except for rejecting the gospel. Do you understand that every sin that you can, will, or even think about committing or have committed is able to be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, that blood is more powerful than anything in this universe. It is able to take a murderer like Paul and make him a messenger of the gospel. It, he's able to take a sinner and make them a saint. Aren't you thankful? And listen, wherever you are today, can I just tell you, your sin is not greater than the blood of Christ. The only sin that God cannot forgive in your life is rejecting the offer of salvation that's available through the person of Christ. That's the only thing that he can't forgive. Man, if you can trust him for your salvation, you can trust him for everything else. Because listen, his blood has the power to wash us clean through his shed blood. Okay, so listen. You can blaspheme the Holy Ghost. Can I tell you, number three, that the Holy Spirit of God is the comforter to the believer. John 14 and verse 16, John 14 and verse 26. Both references are accurate, but the comforter, Christ says, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Man, the Spirit of God is called the comforter for the believer in Christ. Where do you get your comfort from? Because if it's not through the Holy Spirit, you're probably not getting comfort. Hello? I mean, listen. 
You see, you see a, a persecuted church like Sardis needed to be comforted because <laughs> they were getting killed. <laughs> well, man, there's nothing in this earth that can comfort us in, in that type of persecution except for the Spirit of God. You see, God himself through his Holy Spirit is able to bring us comfort. He's able to give us a peace that passes all understanding. In the midst of uncertainty, we can have comfort because we know him. God gives us his Holy Spirit. John 14 and verse 26, the Spirit of God is the teacher of the Word of God. He says in that same verse that the Spirit, the Comforter, is going to teach you all things, and he's going to bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said to you. And, and it's the Spirit of God that reveals God's truth to us. And I'm thankful for that because, man, I'm just a redneck that grew up in a peanut field in South Alabama. I'm telling you, man, I'm, I'm thankful that it doesn't depend on my intellect or my ability, or my intelligence to understand the Word of God. God can teach me through His Holy Spirit. He's the teacher. He seals the believer. Do you know that you can't lose your salvation? Listen, if you don't know it, today's a good day, and I'm glad you came to church. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, God tells us whom you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, and the whom is Christ, in Christ also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Hello? God says that the Spirit of God is what seals us as a believer in Christ. Verse 14 says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. You see, you couldn't save yourself. You can't keep yourself but man, the Spirit of God can. And the Spirit of God will, because God's Word said so. He gave you an earnest. He put a down payment in your heart and life that is the Holy Spirit. When you receive the gospel, God sealed you with his Spirit of promise, and he tells you how far he sealed you in that verse, until the day of redemption. So it ought to give you some comfort. It ought to give you some peace. Man, that spirit of God seals us. He feels us. He fills us according to Ephesians chapter 5. He tells us to be filled with the spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it tells us that he bears fruit in our life. It's the fruit of the spirit that's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there's no law. He empowers us. Can I just tell you, it's the Spirit of God that empowers us to do ministry. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. I find comfort in that verse because I can't even complete a sentence many times. I'm an idiot. Man, I'm a bumbling idiot. But Paul said, you know what? When I preach, it's in the demonstration of the Spirit and a power. That, that's why you ought to be available for God to use you. Because it's not about your ability it's not about your intelligence. It's not about your ability to present, to do. I don't want to look like an idiot. Well, you're going to look like an idiot anyways. Okay, so just take, just get that out of your mind. God is, God is able to use every one of us because it's his power. And listen, when we walk in the spirit and, and, and depend on the spirit of God, well, God gets the glory out of that. So the key command as we, as we study this person of the Holy Spirit is God tells us in his word not to quench the spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 19. Remember, we, we looked at Revelation 4 and we said that those, the seven spirits were like seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, right? 
And God warns us in the Bible not to quench the Spirit of God. By the way, when you, when you study that out, that word quench in your Bible, the first mention of that is Numbers 11 and verse 2. God sends his fiery judgment among the nation of Israel. Moses prayed unto the Lord. The Bible says the fire was quenched. That word quench means to extinguish, to put out, to suppress, to stifle. God's warning to us is not to quench the Spirit of God because we need him. If we're going to overcome, if we're going to be victorious, we have to know who the Spirit of God is and we have to completely depend on him. Man, as we, as we quench the Spirit of God, we're literally putting out the fire of God's power in our life. And, and, and we begin walking in the flesh. And we'll do things in our own power, in our own spirit. And, and man, can I just tell you, that never works. It doesn't work. We need the Spirit of God in our life. And so the key command number two is this. We need to learn to walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 25 says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And, and remember those seven things that we talked about in Isaiah. So, so practically, let me just break it down and connect it like this. If we walk in the Spirit, based on Isaiah 11, number one, that means we're going to walk with the Lord. Because it's the Spirit of the Lord, right? It's His Spirit. It means we're going to walk in wisdom. If we're going to walk in the Spirit, we're going to walk in wisdom because He is the Spirit of wisdom. If we're going to walk in the Spirit, it means we're going to walk with understanding. We're going to walk with counsel because he's the spirit of counsel. We're going to walk in might because he has the might. We're going to walk in knowledge and we're going to walk in the fear of the Lord. And so God says we need to know who the spirit of God is. And, 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 and by the way, when we walk in the spirit and we walk with the Lord and we walk in wisdom and we walk in understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and in the fear of the Lord, that'll be manifest. It'll be obvious. In other words, my wisdom, my understanding, my counsel, my power is not in me. It's in the Spirit of God and the authority of God's Word. I'm going to live my life according to the Word of God in the fear of God. So, so we need Him, church. And that church at Sardis needed Him. And I dare say, man, if we're not careful... We'll miss the power that's available to us through the Spirit of God, and we won't be able to overcome the challenges that we have in our life. And God forbid we face persecution like they faced it. But man, if the day comes, I wonder, I wonder who will be able to overcome that. Well, anybody that does won't be able to do it in their power. They'll have to do it in complete dependency on the Spirit of God. The second thing that this church needed, that Christ revealed, he said, I also have the seven stars. Okay, so, so Christ reveals the second part of his character to this church at Sardis. And he says, I have the seven stars. Now, Revelation chapter 1 and verse, verse 20 tells us that those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And I think what God is trying to show Sardis is not only the reality of the need for the power of the Spirit of God, but number two, the reality of the need for the local church. In other words, Christ emphasized the local church. Remember, in Sardis, there was this ecumenical organization. There was this one world religion. There was this one world universal church. 
And Christ is like, yeah, I'm not about that. But what I am about are these seven stars in my hand, which are the seven angels of the seven what? Which are the seven angels of the seven churches. God's emphasis all through the New Testament is about the local New Testament church, not a one-world religious system. As a matter of fact, if you study the word church in the Bible, and I encourage you to do that, 85 to 90% of the time, the word church is talking about a local assembly of believers, just like this. You say, why does that matter? Well, it matters because the local church is what assembles. Number one, you see, it's a local church that assembles, not the universal church. The universal church has never assembled. That'll happen at the rapture when we all go up together with the Lord. But until then, it's actually the local church that assembles. In other words, God wants you to meet with a local assembly of believers. So in other words, you can't just do church behind a screen at home. God's called us to assemble. It's the local church. It's the local body of Christ that assembles. Number two, it's the local church that has God-ordained leadership. So pastors and deacons, God has positioned them as leadership in a local church. There is no universal hierarchy of leadership for the quote-unquote universal church. So no hope in the Pope, man. Sorry. I mean, that system is not biblical. And that role of leadership is not biblical. God puts local church authority and leadership through pastors and deacons in a local church context. Number three is the local church that observes the ordinances. It's done through the, the local church. It's the local church that's tasked to train believers. So listen, man, you know my heartbeat. Those of you that have been around for a minute, we emphasize discipleship at this church heavily. You know why we do that? Because God emphasizes it heavily. You say, well, that's just your program. No, that's the Bible's program. It's the process of maturity. It's actually the local church's responsibility to train its, its believers to maturity. We don't outsource that to anybody else. By the way, you don't outsource the training of your children to anybody else, do you? That's, that's not a public school comment versus homeschool. Who takes the responsibility for your children? You take the responsibility in your home. And even if they go to public school, you take the responsibility to grow and train and mature your children because it's a family. And the local church is tasked to train its believers. And so you ought to be tapping into the training that's available. Number three, it's the local church, number, number five, whatever. It's the local church that's tasked to send missionaries. So, so listen, the biblical model to get people on the ground in the world to preach the gospel and to make disciples is done, that work is done through local churches. You say, well, why don't lo local churches do that? I don't know why they don't do it. But this one will, by God's grace. We are aiming to start churches and send missionaries from this local church, which means some of you need to, to pray about it and prepare. You need to pray and prepare because God's going to use his local church to do that. And, and, and lastly, it's the local church that invokes church discipline. And that's not a, a favorite topic for Sunday morning sermon, is it? But can I just tell you, it's the local church that invokes church discipline. So when you're part of a church family and, and you violate a walk that's consistent with scripture, 
well, then you, hit, you get held accountable to that. And by the way, that's why most people sit at home behind a screen. Because they don't want accountability. They, they want to live in their sin, tune into a sermon, learn some facts and figures, live out their Christianity by themselves with no structured local church authority, training, ordinances, fellowship in their life. Well, it's going to be really hard for you, man. That's not the way God designed it. So, so why did God reveal himself to Sardis in this way? Well, it's because that's what they needed. Look at verse 1, and we'll, we'll wind it down. Why did Sardis need the Spirit of God? And why did they need a love and an understanding for the local church? Because Christ says to them in, in, in verse 1, the last part of the verse, verse, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and are what? Dead. So here's what Jesus was saying to this church, and I know this is your last blank, but don't turn me off just yet. Jesus was saying to this church, you call yourself Christian, but you're actually dead. By the way, spiritually, you can be dead. If you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never been quickened and made alive through his forgiveness, the Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, I was 21 years old, and I heard that message clearly for the very first time. Somebody shared the gospel with me, and I realized that my sin, it was my sin that made me spiritually dead in a relationship with Christ. I was a dead man walking, and I needed to be born again. I need to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel in faith. So spiritually, you can be dead. And again, here's a church that had a name that they lived, and yet they were dead. In other words, they had the name Christian, right? It, 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 they, had a, they had a church that was, quote, Christian and spiritual, but the truth is it wasn't biblical and scriptural. Because Christ... Listen, the true church of Jesus Christ is a living organism. It's not a dead organization. You know, as we study history from 1000 to 1500 AD, we had this thing called the Roman Catholic Church, and it represented this universal church, and they called themselves Christian. And, and listen, I'm not, I'm not minimizing any Roman Catholic's personal faith in the finished work of Christ. But I am telling you that just because you have a name, it doesn't make you alive. Only Christ makes you alive. Historically, that church had a growing membership, but it lacked growing members. It had a name, but it had no life. And can I just tell you, if you have Christ, you have life. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 says, This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So, man, Sardis needed to hear from God. And what they needed to hear was, you need to tap into the fullness of the Spirit of God, and you need the local assembly. You need it. And, and, and we do too. We need it. I need it. And so in closing, let me just ask you a couple of questions as we consider these things. Number one, are you walking with the Lord? In other words, are you walking in the Spirit? Are you walking in wisdom, in understanding, in counsel, in, in might, in knowledge, or in the fear? Are you walking in a way 
that you're completely dependent on the Spirit of God. The answer to that question determines whether or not you really depend on the Spirit of God or not. Let me ask you a second question. Do you assemble regularly? By the way, uh, you know, they, they do these surveys, right, these studies for churches and stuff. They, they now say that faithful, regular church attendance is once a month. That's considered faithful. Let me just tell you something. God doesn't consider that faithful, for the record. Lest you think that God is okay with that. That's not regular faithful attendance. Do you assemble regularly? Do you submit yourself to God's ordained leadership in any local church that you're a part of? This church or whatever your home church is. Do you observe the ordinances? Are you submitted to be discipled? Or are you outsourcing your spiritual growth to YouTube and your favorite Christian author? Are you praying about and preparing to be sent? And if so, is it through the context of a local church? Or is it through the context of some parachurch organization that God never commissioned, not, God never called, and God never enabled and empowered to send missionaries, by the way, for the record, BTW? Are you accountable? You see, you see the way you answer those questions determines your dependency on a local church. And God wants us to be dependent on both. We need to be dependent on him, but it's his Holy Spirit and it's his church and we need it. And so if you're here today, number one, I hope you know Christ is your Lord and Savior. Number two, I hope you know that you need the Spirit of God daily, hourly. Number three, you need a local church. And if it's not this one, it needs to be somewhere where you can get connected, trained, grow to maturity, fellowship, be a part of the ministry that God's called you to. Because God didn't call you to get saved, to just sit. He called you to grow and to serve and to go. That's every one of us. And we got to have that. Amen? We got to have it. Let's pray and we'll dismiss. Father, we love you. Thank you, God, for your word. And 